You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Where future readiness is about that recognition that you are going to continually adapt, that that your ability to adapt not just you know occasionally in the ongoing in the occasional sense, but perpetually, even daily. And this doesn't mean like a, a, a sea change shift every time, but it means that ability to to be open enough to see what's changing around you, to be open enough to revisit your assumptions and whether or not they still hold, whether or not they're the most important, whether or not new pieces have come in, to be willing to do that in a way where if you're working with others, and really at the end of the day, we're all working with others in every setting, to be able and willing to invite that conversation around that kind of change and adaptation. That was Larry Robertson. Return guest, friend, field colleague, and author. He joins me to discuss Rebel Leadership, which is both the name of his new book and a way of thinking about leadership in these volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous times. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss why these wild times we live in will be the norm for the century, the upshot of this uncertainty, why future-proofing is inevitably going to be a no-win scenario, and how each of us can thrive, despite the difficulties of the work ahead. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Larry, thanks so much for joining me again on the podcast. Every conversation that we have, I feel um, better for it, right? Just as a human, but also more knowledgeable as someone in the craft of making businesses work and making teams work and helping people thrive while doing those two things. So thanks so much for joining us again. Oh my gosh, Charlie, it's such a pleasure in that magnetic feeling and that uh, sense of amplification after a conversation with you is very mutual. Thanks so much. Um, so we're going to be talking around a few things. Um, one of the our, our convergence points when it comes to our body of work is leadership, innovation, creativity, and how we get that to work in teams. Okay. Um, and so you got a new book out called Rebel Leadership. And I, when I first heard this book was coming out, Larry, my first thing was like, huh, why is Larry writing a book called Rebel Leadership? Because when I think of Larry, I don't necessarily think like that title and what I know of you and your body of work. I'm like, I'm, huh, what's going on here? Hmm. Um, so I read a little bit more, but for those other folks who might be curious about what to be getting it with that title, tell us a little bit more about why it's Rebel Leadership and, and how you came to that particular way of expressing it. Sure. So I think of Rebel Leadership the two words together as a new term. And when you think about those words individually, most of us are both attracted to and to some extent or in some instances repelled by those two terms. But if you think about the best of both, it's really what meets the times that we're in. The times that we're in are 
uncertain to say the least. And we're we're not just talking about the pandemic here. We're we're really talking about this entire century to date has con- has has been on this path of increasing uncertainty, or as it's sometimes pop- popularly used, it's a VUCA environment. It's volatile. It's uncertain. It's complex and it's ambiguous. Not some of the time, but all of the time. So the the innovativeness, the uh, comfort with openness and the willingness to experiment, the desire as well as the realization that we need to adapt, that's what's in that rebel part, right? Not the throw caution to the wind, roll the dice no matter what the, the situation is, uh, rack up the, the costs on your credit card. That is not the kind of rebel I'm talking about. I'm talking about that innovative, adaptive side. And on the leadership side, you know, we think of, of leaders as the person who leads others, but really the best leaders create an environment where everyone can lead in their own way, where new leaders, unexpected leaders rise to the, the surface in particular moments, but across the, the spectrum. And I would go one step further to say, when you develop that leadership culture, you actually, everyone in that culture leads at the height of human potential. So rebel leadership together is taking that adaptive, innovative, creative side in each one of us and that leadership ability we all have, even if we don't practice it, and marrying the two together to thrive in these uncertain times. Hmm. I love that. I've often told people um, as as the events of the century will unfold, as we're going back to a new age of pioneers, Mm. right? We need to be teaching our children. We need to be teaching our nephews and nieces and, you know, all the, all the generations to come about how to be more pioneerish versus more um, in that industrial revolution mode of just like cranking something unpredictable. Because when we look at it, we've got, and so I'm going to zoom up here about the VUCA world that's going to be present. Like we think it's present now. And it is present now, but we're talking about transhumanism, meaning that this century will have, you know, the smart devices that we carry around that are external to your bot to our bodies. It's inevitable that they will be in our body. And as those things come in our body, it starts to push the boundaries of what's human and what's not. And that sounds very sci-fi, but it's not right. It's next decade. Right. That we're talking about. We're talking about the, the effects of climate change. We're talking about the effects of um, a real, tangible, virtual society on top of the physical society we live in, what that means. So cyberbullying is a great example of that, right? What do you do when you have these two layered realities on top of each other mm-hmm. and having to navigate both in their omnipresent and in your body, right? Um, space travel, um, we have all the things related to that. We have the new economic orders that are emerging around crypto and just, you know, globalism and things like that. The And then we have effects like COVID and pandemics. This is not going to be our last, right? Um, sure. and, and wasn't our first. And it wasn't our first, right? And so when you look at all of those things combined, um, we need to be prepared for a very, very uncertain world, a very VUCA world, you know, for the foreseeable you know, for the foreseeable future until things stabilize, because that's sort of the human pattern. There's a lot of chaos, a lot of, a lot of disorder, order, reorder. We just are on the cusp of a disorder age. Yes. And the, and the speed of all of that, Charlie, I think is 
um, one of the most compelling parts of not the, I'm not going to say the argument, but the the invitation and really the need to think about these things, to not just treat them as, as a headline and move on, but to think about their relative impact on you. So so one of the ways that that I think about this is, well, before we go on to the good side of this, because there is a good side to this mm-hmm. this volatility, right? Um, if we were to think about what is the the negative motivation to get you mm-hmm. going here, we could think in terms of risk. Mm-hmm. And if you think in terms of risk, the, uh, Deloitte did a, a, a study just just in May of, of this year where they talked about, you know, what is it we're facing in this uncertain world? What is it that we're likely to encounter as we hopefully come out of the tail end of COVID? Do things just return to normal or do they become something new? And what they pointed out, and it refers to this risk, is in the past, we experienced risk in one of two ways. And I love the, the image here. The first was like a tide. So it would come in, and when it was at a distance, it might look unfamiliar, it might look even a little bit threatening, but it came in at a pace that we could eventually get our minds around it, and then get our arms around it, and then arrive at some new kind of status quo. That it, it, in um, the World Economic Forum calls that conventional risk. We're, that's what we know, right? And that's how we tend to think about risk in general. Deloitte went on to say there's another kind of risk that's always been out there, and it's storm surge risk. Mm-hmm. So instead of just coming in like a tide, it arrives suddenly and enormously. But in the past, it also occurred in an isolated fashion. It didn't always impact everybody. COVID shows us that you know that that isn't necessarily the case, that it'll always be contained. But what they went on to say is that now we experience both <laughs> more often and more often in combination. And if you really think about those risks, they are overlapping one another underneath the surface in ways that we can't even see. So the way that it impacts us on an individual level is overlapping with the way it impacts us on a team or an organizational level, a societal level, a global level. That's really what we're talking about here in terms of this kinds of uncertainty. So this idea that it'll never touch my shores or somebody will figure it out first. That may have worked in the past, but now it's about if this is our new reality, how do I contend with that? Do I just, am I fearful of it? Do I put my head in a hole or head in the sand? Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's allowed to do that for very long. But if I have to go forward and embrace it, how do I go about doing that? That's what I think is the really interesting thought here. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, as things become, so you've talked about this being in a VUCA world, right? And one of the reasons why VUCA is now ubiquitous is because of how um, interrelated all of our systems are. Mm, yep. Right. Um, COVID revealed a lot of that for people. Like these are really interconnected systems individually, community, social, globally, the whole thing. Um, and, you know, when we talk about VUCA, you mentioned volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. There's sometimes where I want to play with that C mm-hmm. um, and and really put it into chaotic as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, because the more enmeshed and the more bloated your system becomes, the more unpredictable effects or changes in the systems will happen. Yes, right. Um, and so that's partially why we're seeing that thunderstorm are coming. I would I would say it's one of those things. It's kind of like 
a spontaneous eruption where there you where there didn't appear to be fault lines, <laughs> right? Um, yes. and that's the tricky thing because we don't know the butterfly effect of some of the some of the changes in the system and what's going to happen. And so it's when you really think about these interconnected systems and understand that there's this fundamental um, challenge that that we don't like as humans in that when we when we change something in a system, we actually don't know what's going to happen on the backside of it. That's right. That's right. Um, And so it's chaotic. So we're always in the middle of changing something. It's going to have upsides. It's going to have downsides, but it's going to have either that tide that starts happening that you mentioned or that spontaneous eruption. And we need to be prepared for that and live, live in that place of uncertainty and chaos, as opposed to try to contain that uncertainty and chaos. Yeah, and so this is really interesting. We have to be prepared for either or both, right? And it's isn't it interesting how we think, if I can just figure out the thing I need to be prepared for, right? The one thing, the, the, the narrowing. This goes back to, you know, we, when we first mentioned uncertainty, you were talking about this idea of living almost in a formulaic way or, you know, an a industrial revolution efficiency way that you, you just move along the line and everything is linear and, and, and so on and so forth. And when you're talking about that sea being chaotic, mm-hmm. it doesn't allow for that to be the dominant feature. So this isn't to say, that you can't have organization around what you do, a project, a business, whatever it is. It isn't to say that you shouldn't plan or you shouldn't have systems or, or, or job descriptions or things like that. But it is saying in a chaotic world, if those are the priority, if everything is driven from those first, mm-hmm. you're screwed. If, on the other hand, those are supportive as they should have been all along, they're supportive of some larger fundamental things, right? And and therefore, if they're supportive, you allow them to change, not always dramatically, uh, not always a throw the, the baby out kind of thing. But if you allow them to continue to adjust to what those larger themes, larger goals, larger purpose is, then you are more likely to thrive in that chaos. And people and organizations are thriving in this chaos and uncertainty. So even as we look around, I mean, everybody in the news loves to highlight the negative. Where Mm -hmm. where are things failing? But people are thriving in this. And I think that's fascinating to look at and say, well, how can I do the same? How can I do the same indeed? And um, I'm glad you preempted the nihilism that sometimes people will get into when we really talk about this VUCA world that we live in. It's like, it's just going to be so unpredictable and chaotic. Mm-hmm. Like, what does anything matter? It doesn't matter if you plan. It doesn't matter if you have good organizational structure. It's all going to change. Like, there's there's a, a bit of resignation to yes. the negative side of this world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this is really the opportunity. And I think, Larry, we talked about this last year when with the emergence of COVID, right? We're sort of like in this dance right now. But I was like, this is our opportunity to create a better new normal, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, I said at the time, we don't get opportunities like this a lot. And I still think that's true, right? Even though we're talking about these macro effects, some of them are going to be bubbly, but we don't get the opportunity where all of our workways are upended, <laughs> All of the ways that we do business are upended, um, and then we have to figure it out. And people are like, "That's a weird way of saying opportunity, Charlie." Because you realize how many people died. And I'm like, "Yes, I do." 
very much. And I realize the communities that are the most disadvantaged disadvantaged in this. Right. And we also still have this way of saying, of OK, this happened. <laughs> A lot of people died. Right. Right. Um, what led to that that we can learn from in the future? Not saying that their death had had meaning and things like that. I'm not going to go on that argument. But sure. here we are in this moment. How are we going to respond mm-hmm. so that in the next moment it's not – I think maybe you and I talked about this in our last podcast. I should have listened to that. Um, but I get so um, – up in my hackles when people start talking about future proofing their business or future proofing their team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like, ah, no, it's not about future proofing. It's about future readying. Yes. Right? Um, because if it's proofing, and like you said earlier, that's going to get you in a place that no matter what happens, you're screwed. Yep. Right. Um, but when you're future ready, you're always going to be in this place where like, Oh, this is a really difficult period of time. Right. And there's, <laughs> really some opportunities here. There's really some moments that we need to seize in the middle of this difficulty to drive forward. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and I love the, the and connector, the and conjunction here, right? Because future proofing to me says, what's the next formula, right? What's the next status quo that we want to assume and then declare victory, right? Where future readiness is about that recognition that you are going to continually adapt, that, that your ability to adapt, not just you know, occasionally, in the, ongoing in the occasional sense, but perpetually, even daily. And this doesn't mean like a, a, a sea change shift every time, but it means that ability to, to be open enough to see what's changing around you, to be open enough to revisit your assumptions and whether or not they still hold, whether or not they're the most important, whether or not new pieces have come in, to be willing to do that in a way where if you're working with others, and really at the end of the day, we're all working with others in every setting, to be able and willing to invite that conversation around that kind of change and adaptation. That's what we're talking about here, because then anything that comes into your sights you are at the very least more ready for it. And, and I think the, the funny thing about when we say things like future proof or future ready is um, we, we expect it to be like a toaster, that it's going to come with a guarantee of, of some sort. And that's not really what it is. It, as you well know, it's, this is about raising the odds that you see the change coming sooner and you adapt in advance, or even when you don't, that you are able to respond effectively in a, in a faster fashion. That's what we're talking about here. We are not talking about reading or reaching this state of perfection or permanence for that matter. No, uh, perfection or, or permanence. Um, you know, I was about to say there, there are ideals, but I don't know that I believe that anymore. Mm. Uh, I think, um, but I'll chew on that and, and, and journal on that. But one of the things I wanted to highlight is how you went about developing the thesis and the substance of this book. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, just, I, I know obviously cause I've read the book, but t- bring us into that a bit more. Yeah, that's so the, it, it's interesting because, like mo- I was going to say so many things, but I'll say most things in life, there was no 
um, immaculate conception. There, there was, it, it wasn't this, oh my gosh, I, I have this idea and that's where we want to go. I mean, in some ways, this book is an evolu- evolution out of the previous two books. So the, the, without going into them, the first book, A Deliberate Pause, was about entrepreneurship. And how can we back up from that and think about that in a larger way? What is it exactly? Who really is behind it? How does it happen that some succeed and have lasting impact where others don't? It was that kind of step back. The second book, The Language of Man, was about creativity. And in a way, it was like a double step back. So it was going a step before the first book on entrepreneurship to say, that's great, this whole entrepreneurial mindset and, and creating that kind of environment where many can, okay, but, but what came before that? What, what originates those ideas? What, what motivates us and pushes us down the path? So, so that was a step back as well. <clears throat> One of the key drivers for this new book, Rebel Leadership, was this sense of incompleteness, this sense of even if you understand well the entrepreneurial undertaking from a project to a business, nonprofit, whatever it might have, a, a social cause, whatever it might be. Even if you have a greater sense of the fact that we're all creative and, and, and how do we go about tapping that, there was something missing. And it wasn't really missing. If you look at, if you look in the pages of the book, you'll see it there, but it wasn't highlighted. And that was, how do we lead? How do we lead out of our ideas into something bigger. When that, when what we do attracts other people, how do we lead them not just to execute on, on our plan, but to evolve the idea themselves, to take it places we couldn't have imagined so that it, we keep expanding value? How do we lead? And it coupled with a time relevance, right? So there was this incompleteness was one driver, but a time relevance was another. And, and it's what we referred to earlier. It's not just this moment that's uncertain. It's this century to date and as far out as we can see in the future. That's And it's not going away. So what does leadership look like in that context? And how does it look so very different from not only what it did in the past, but what we're told and trained to think about leadership. I mean, really, if you think about it, if you look at most of the stories about leaders, they're heroic. It's one person at the top who is, a, it's implied that they're going to have all the answers. They're, they're going to set the perfect tone, that they're, they're going to somehow make magic and make it all the time. Now, that's never really been the reality. But when you live in uncertain times, it brings this magnifying glass to it that says, really, one, one person? How can that possibly be? I mean, we're all imperfect and incomplete, especially if things are constantly moving. So this sense of incompleteness of just the larger body of work of, of mine, this time relevance of how do you match that discussion and that exploration of leadership to this moment? And then there was this multi-layered need I saw out there. Um, organizations that had been at the top and were struggling to stay at the top. Organizations that were on the rise and trying to become something valuable and significant in this moment, and the moment keeps changing on them. But also a generational need as uh, a certain part of our quote-unquote leadership ages out, we have a whole raft of people behind who are, they have the potential to be exceptional leaders, 
but they've not really been given the opportunity or the encouragement. They've been encouraged to be managers, which is something different. And then behind that is this enormous wave of the youngest generations that are entering or about to enter the workforce who not only are our future leaders, but look at the world differently. So how do we see leadership through that lens and what's important to them and what's going to be meaningful in this time? Those were the things that kind of drove me to this. And then it was a matter of looking around at the, at the research to say, why don't we lead in a more effective way in uncertain times? What, what is it we're told about leadership that really doesn't uh, produce. I mean, we follow it, but it doesn't produce. And similarly, what can I look at out there that is actually working? What are the patterns across a very diverse range of teams and organizations that are actually thriving in these uncertain times? So if you if you put those four things together, right, this sense of incompleteness, which was really in my own head, this time relevance of uncertain times, this multi-layered need of we're all looking for something new when it comes to leadership, and then looking at the effectiveness, the patterns across those that are thriving in these uncertain times, that's what drove this project. I love that for multiple reasons. One, um, just for all the authors and conversation leaders and thought leaders of whatever you label yourself, right, out there thinking and exploring this world, like um, give yourself the grace for your body of work to emerge and feel like it's taking, you know, a step backwards, a step forward, a completely different direction. Um, I think all too often people think that um, there's like a plan there or that there needs to be a plan. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an author that I, my work does naturally come in sequences. And so um, it makes sense to me in a way, Um, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessary, right. For, for us to thrive. I say that, but when we actually look at my body of work and the books I've written, they're in the wrong order, (laughs) Um, wrong (laughs) order. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, it's just, you know, staying present and staying in the work and solving that that deep curiosity between yourself, what's going on in the world, what's in the moment and staying into it. And that's one of the things I admire about you, Larry, is because you're always like in that nexus of those things. I appreciate you saying that. And <clears throat> what's what's interesting here is that um, while I fully accept that 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 compliment, what I love is that. If you look around at those people who not only create value, but but they on top of that, they create impact. It's not just value for themselves. It's impact in a larger sense. And more importantly, they continue to do that over time. They're doing exactly what you described, right? They are engaging and re-engaging in the process to not only, as you talk about, right, in, in, in start finishing, to not only materialize their best work, but then to continue to look at that and say, what does my best work mean? What, what, is, what was it in that moment, but how has it evolved to something new? I, I, I'm blanking on the name of, of one of your, your guests, and I just love this interview from a number of years ago. She wrote a book called Body of Work, but this is really what we're talking about, that the body of work is ongoing, that the body of work isn't just the peaks, 
the body of work is actually the motion forward in the context of what's come before, but also in that context of what might possibly be. And when you look at it on that continuum, I actually think it's easier to get started on whatever path you are, because you suddenly see that little moves make a big difference, that moves you thought were brilliant get reconsidered, sometimes tossed out, sometimes layered into other things. And that thing that comes out the end, the output that we all focus on, whether we're talking about creativity or an entrepreneurial pursuit or a life pursuit, right? that's not it. It's what preceded it, right? So if I have, in the sense of creativity, if I have this beautiful creative output, a book, a, a work of art, um, you know, I'm, I'm able to have that impact to lead a social movement, movement and bring others to it, right? We, we shouldn't be looking to replicate that if we're trying to create something similar for ourselves or something that somebody else did. We should be looking at how did they get there? What, what got, so when you look at that body of work, I think that's when you get the real clues to see that this is a continuous process. And frankly, the little stuff matters a hell of a lot more in most cases. Most cases, indeed. Um, you're talking about Pam Slim. And so we'll link in the show Pam, notes to that. Thank you. In that um, I just happened to be talking to her yesterday um, for for no, or day before about something different. Um, so really present to that. And, and um, I think maybe I've talked about this publicly, but we can see body of work as like the metaphor that it is. But I often like to think about it in terms of it's like an archaeological dig and like mm. you're walking and you find this little bead on the ground. You're like, oh, that's interesting. You dig around and like, oh, well, this is part of this other thing and you find a fork and you're like, Oh, it's a fork. That's cool. But then you realize you dig a little bit more. This is a kitchen. Wait, this is a house. Wait, this is a whole town. Right. Right. Uh, right. And then that thing you thought was like a pot for plants. You figure out it's a chamber pot, which means that it changes the whole like flow of what happened there. And I know I'm being like heavily metaphorical, but that's sometimes what it's like. It's like, Oh, it's a fork. And you come back later. It's like, no, that was actually a ceremonial <laughs> you know, device and it had a different meaning. You just didn't know it at the time. But if you never did the digging yes, and you didn't keep digging, you would never come to that new understanding of what you found before. Yeah, so I got, I got to just amplify that for a second. Right. So not only is that true about each one of us, but let's break down what blocks a lot of us from going forward with, <clears throat> with, our, our dreams are our, our, our what we want to do, the next part of our body of work we want to create. We look around at others who've done something that we admire, right? And maybe we want to do that. Maybe we just want to do something similar to it. And we think about them in this heroic sense, right? Because we look at the accomplishment. But to really understand what they've done, not just to get at what we can do on our own, you have to do that archaeological dig on them. And in each of my books, I've done that kind of digging, right? The first was looking at entrepreneurs. The second was looking at creators and innovators. And the third was looking at leaders in the broadest sense, including those first two groups. And digging down underneath to say, I, I, I don't want to talk to you about what you've what you've output here. I want to talk to you about what you thought along the way, what you encountered that went well and went poorly, what has stuck with you and resonated that has been your, your compass, your North star, when you went through the ups and downs that other people don't see. So I think that digging is, is not only important for realizing how you can advance individually, right? It's important for realizing how those you admire 
have advanced, right? And it's a better indicator of the path you're going to have to go through to get wherever you want to go next. That it's it's this back and forth of digging and advancing that's a, that's part of the mix all the time. Part of the mix all the time, and it creates that infinite game, right? Yep. Um, because you know, at a certain point, you'll never be done, um, but you're not doing it to be done. You know, um, so I, I love that aspect of it. But there's also um, the fact that you interviewed hundreds of people. Not, I mean, some of those interviews were directly for this book. Some of them was reusing interviews you had done earlier. But was that? It, it, and those people are across a broad range of you know industries and types and you know specialties. Um, I know you well enough to know that I'm not going to ask whether that was intentional because it was intentional, but Mm -hmm. what was your intention in doing it that way? Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're right. It was intentional, but there were, there were several layers below it. Um, so one of the key things that I learned early on in these interviews, Charlie, is to shut up and listen. And so I don't go into these conversations with a, um, preconceived notion of what I might hear. I really try to ask the most revealing or potentially revealing questions I can, and then to be quiet, uh, and, and quiet beyond the normal space. So, so part of this going to a broad audience was if you can do that, if you can engage them in thinking about questions and especially the ones they don't get asked very often. And it's really interesting, especially if you're talking to people who've had some level of success and many of the folks I have 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 had at least that, um, they get asked the same questions all the time. What attracts them is when you want to ask something completely different. What attracts them is when you've done the homework to know that the answers to those common questions are already out there. So what can you ask them that's new? And it And it sparks this revelation in their own head, not just in yours. The broader the audience, the more revelatory it is because everybody lives in a different space. And if you can broaden out those spaces that you're surveying, you're going to see these things that that immediately look contrasting. But over time and over more of those interviews, you start to see these patterns weave. So that was part of the intent. The, The second part was... If I'm talking about something that ultimately I want to share some insights that anybody can use, then I have to find patterns that exist everywhere. If I just look at case studies or if I just look in a narrow scope of call it a sector type of business, a part of the world, something like that, then I'm really in search of a formula. And that is not going to be helpful to the broadest audience possible. If I'm willing to look far afield, then I'm likely to see these patterns of things that are not only um, uh, insights that repeat, but they are lessons that can transfer. And so I, I learned that in the first two books, and that was really important to me here. But the last part of it is, if you're asking those questions and shutting up, if you're looking for these patterns... It, it always seems to produce these stories that are so much more engaging. They're so much fresher and they go to places 
you wouldn't normally go, even while they're touching on the things you you want most and that you want coming in. They give you a sense of surprise and revelation that I think then makes you pay attention to what's really going on, not just in a book, but in your own world, right? That's when you start doing what you refer to as the digging. Because if you start to see something new or different that you didn't expect before, uh, you raise the odds that you'll start to do some scratching at the surface in your own life. Yeah, I love that. As, as I was thinking about this interview and also reading the book, I was like, hmm, it highlighted for me and it Every every creative person does this. Like, man, he's got so he's his story quotient in this book is so rich. Um, <laughs> Thanks. And I've been reminded by many people that that one of the areas I can improve, and it's especially the popularity of my work, is to include more story. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a principles, process, and systems guy, and that's that's where I find fascination in. Um, and I'm weaker on stories, and so it's always like, how can I come up with a story? What's a story that exemplifies that? Um, so I love that you went from pattern to story because when you see when you see that the story embodies the pattern, although the story is not the pattern, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else? What a pause here. And say, and, and this is surprising for a lot of people, what I've learned in the interviews that I've done is that the rebel leaders, servant leaders, or the really curious people loved to be asked that question that they haven't been asked in a while or that actually stumps them, mm-hmm. right? It's like, huh, I don't know. <laughs> um, and it, it's, um, as, I, as, I was, as I was walking this morning, I was listening to a book that talked about beginner's mind. And it's so rare that you get put in that position where you're like, I don't know. And I love that. It starts this new journey of figuring out where that is. And so um, have you seen that in your interviews as well, just by the way? Yeah, there's, there's no question. And when, when I'll put it in these terms, when someone you felt you had no business talking to not only agrees to talk to you, but at the end of the interview says, wow, I got so much out of that. You know, that was one of the most valuable hours I've spent. To me, that's that's a reflection of, of what you're talking about, that you're you're giving them a question that causes them to reshuffle their deck, to do some digging below the surface of what they do every day, either to get back at what they did before and see it in a new light or to see something they just overlooked. I mean, they knew it was there, but they they overlooked it so it's those kind of things that that are um, a big signal to me that that that's that's what they're getting out of it. And I'll combine it with that, you know, um, uh, learning to shut up. Right. One of the best lessons I ever had in that was for my first book when I interviewed the chef and restaurateur and food innovator Alice Waters. And I had prepared for that interview with like five pages of notes. This was the book about entrepreneurship. And I was going to talk to Alice Waters about entrepreneurship. And the very first thing she says to me, Charlie, is, well, listen, I don't know anything about entrepreneurship and I really don't care about it. But if you want to talk, that's great. Well, all those notes went out the window and everything about that conversation was freeform. And at one point, what I wanted to know most from Alice, she had created this thing called the Edible Schoolyard, which was a way of of bringing gardening and food awareness and business knowledge and community connection to elementary schools. They start a garden. They decide together what they're going to plant. They decide together how they're going to share the responsibilities. They interact with the community selling their food or donating their food or whatever it is. And I wanted to know about the value of this. And guess what? No one had ever asked her that. 
a shocking thing because the model was adopted by so many people. They clearly sensed a value in it, but nobody had asked Alice, what was the value of Edible Schoolyard? And that was the best lesson in she didn't know how to answer initially because there was so much going on in her head and she'd never asked herself or been asked by others to organize it in any way, to look for the patterns. But I just remained silent. And for nearly five minutes, she went on layering one answer, but then wait, I need to dig a little bit further, but then no, I need to take a, a left turn at Albuquerque. It's, it's something over here. And then bringing it all together. And you could hear her exhale at the end of this because she had been invited to go through that process of sorting and then redirecting. So it's that combination of digging and looking forward. Uh, it, it's a really special thing when anybody experiences that. And what's fascinating to me, Charlie, is it's so simple, right? It, if I thought only about the revelatory answer instead of the fact that I just asked her a question and then I was quiet, right? I did the simple things to get to that. I, to me, it makes you realize that anybody can do that in anything at any moment. If they're, if they're expecting that it gets them to the end point by doing the little thing, eh, it's not going to work so well. But if they're willing to take that one step, you actually get in this habit of asking these different questions, of reflecting on things, of digging, and then using that as your your ammo to take yourself forward. Of course, it would be the philosopher in me that has says this, but like I tell a lot of people, it's like, you know, we walk around thinking we need better answers. Mm. The reality is we need better questions um, and the willingness to engage with them in a way that fits the question. Yep. Um, and no, sometimes that's silence. And, and you know what, this is so interesting. So I, if I don't think we've talked about this before, but, but for my second book, we'll move forward here from Alice to, to Deb Myers. So, um, Deborah, Deborah Meyer is a education reformer. She's also a, a MacArthur fellow. So she, she comes in and turns around schools. She creates new models for schools, things like that. And everything she does in her own work, but everything her team does right from the people who are the long haulers who've been there forever, the people they onboard, the people they only interface occasionally with the partners on the outside, they all follow what she calls the five habits of the mind. And the five habits are they start everything they do every day, every project, every meeting with five questions. And the questions are, how do we know what we know? Is there a pattern? Which the two of those things, if you think about that, you're, the first one, you're reconsidering your assumptions. The second one, you're looking not for the anomaly, but for the things that, that connect into a pattern, leads to the third question, some form of what if. Given what we're seeing, what if we did that to remedy the situation? What if we did that to advance the situation? So from how do we know what we know, to is there a pattern, to what if, to is there another way of looking at it, which for them is, is a check on don't fall in love with the idea. Keep looking, keep reinforcing the habit. And the last question is, who cares? Because if it's not directed at anything or at anybody, then it's not really valuable. Here's the really important thing. Deb says that when other people try to adopt that, right, to build those important questions, and those are pretty simple questions, but they're powerful. When people try to adopt that, they very quickly try to turn the questions into statements. This is what we know. 
this is the pattern. This is the innovation we should go after or the thing we should stick with. So I think it kind of reinforces what you're saying. It's, it's not just asking those questions, but allowing the question to remain there. Even if you come up with an answer and you start working on that, even if that's what guides your work for the next month, the next year, whatever it might be, the question should remain. And that's what makes your work powerful in the end. I love it. Um, I was on a training yesterday for DEI for a nonprofit that I'm in, um, that I'm on the board of directors on, and they have rules for engagement or rules for conversations or agreements. I don't know what they call them, right, mm -hmm. at this point. But one that I love that's a part of it is um, expect and accept non-closure, mm -hmm. meaning that you're going to ask a question and get into a conversation that you're not going to get the closure that you may want on that I love piece, that. Right. And I think that's, you know, I, when we have it, it's like, I, I want to use that in <laughs> across the board with so many things. I do it with my clients all the time, but I'm like, we don't know the answer to this one. I don't know that we will be able to know the answer to this one, but I know we can scratch at it. Right. And yeah. try and see if, you know, sometimes we, um, sometimes we know what the target is and we aim at it. And sometimes by aiming, we find a target. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I know that's a military metaphor on that one, but it's just accepting that non-closure and, and that it's going to remain a question. Um, and again, that goes back to the VUCA thing that we started with, mm. right? If you expect there's an answer, period, or an exclamation point, very soon, you know, the world is going to come and start turning that 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 period into a comma. Yes. And turning it into a dash and start to like really erasing that finality that you put on the end of that statement. Um, and that's just the world we live in. Yeah. And there's so there's something you you said that I just want to make sure nobody skips over. You said once you recognize the power in this idea of, of questioning, of accepting the incomplete and sort that you would love to see that across the board. And that's what I find so interesting about this is that even when people realize what we've just been talking about and that it can be powerful, whether they are conscious of it or not, they tend to apply it in isolated places instead of as this habit across the board. And, and that's one of the things that fascinated me so much in rebel leadership, looking at these patterns of people and organizations that are being successful in these uncertain times is that the insights that are shared in the book, including, the, and they embrace what we're talking about here, that this uh, recognition that you constantly need to adapt, which is a, a, a partner to incompleteness, right? It's, it's, not, it's not going to stay in one motion. It's using those thoughts across the board in everything they do, every act, every decision, every day, and more importantly, inviting everybody else to do the same, not just inviting them into the conversation, but empowering them, even rewarding them for that, that has been the most powerful thing in uncertain times. So it is the spreading across the board that matters most, even though, you know, these individual insights, like the ones we're talking about right now are really powerful. It's that spread and, and the continuing spread of that, that I think is really revelatory here. Speaking of revelatory, um, of the five insights, was there one that was more surprising to you than some of the others? That's a really good question. Yeah. So the five insights in the book, uh, it, as, when, as you know, and when readers look at it, the, the way the chapters are, are titled, 
are the way that people talk about these insights. So the, the first chapter is let them laugh. Soul matters most, right? The second chapter, core chapter is leadership moves. The third is it's the culture, stupid. The fourth is find your power source and make it your superpower. And the last one is the long view matters right now. So what's interesting to me, first of all, is that all of those insights are, are helpful. All of those insights are powerful. It's what they do in combination that really surprise me the most. So, you know, there's a tendency when we talk about best practices or new frameworks or ways of looking at things for the people who try to adopt them to try to peel off certain parts, right? To say, oh, culture, that is the most important. Yeah, you could argue that, that it's the hub of everything else, but it only becomes powerful when interconnected to the other things. If you only prioritize culture, thought about culture, and you never thought about direction and how leadership needs to move across people to go in any direction, if you never thought about soul and shared purpose and the things that guide you, and then culture would just be a pipe dream. It, it would never really amount to anything. If you never thought about that long view, you might be successful in the short run, but you're not going to repeat success and repeat the creation of value. So I would say that instead of any one thing, it was the interconnection that became so important. And it's not that I wasn't conscious of that. It's that the more I looked at it, the more powerful it, it got and the more I realized that it needed that, that emphasis. And, you know, it's funny, I, I look at the back, back of the book now and say, gosh, did I emphasize that enough or did I leave it too much to the discovery of the reader? But I always assume my readers are intelligent. And so I hope that in that they see that it's the interconnection that matters. Well, Larry, this is why you have interviews about it, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. And I'm being half you know, half, half facetious on that one. But I found with start finishing and as I'm working on workways, it's like, there's always that regret that like the book in a way becomes a finished thing. It's done. It's out there in the world. And I'm like, Oh, I can look at it multiple ways. I can show up for a conversation and be like, uh, I really didn't put this in the book. I really didn't do that. Or I can right. say, you know what, this is the opportunity to make the idea living and yes. to really correct it as we go along, because we have this, oral tradition in our societies that list that, that rides alongside the written traditions as well. Mm. And so, you know, it's a way of, of building on the book and you're not, you're not ever going to get any book complete and done and say it everything, you know, this, cause this is your third one, but sure. And that's you why we have finish, interviews. You wouldn't finish a book if you were trying to, you know, market forever in time. I mean, we referred to Pam and your conversation with her earlier and, and she had written a book before body of work. Right. And and things were revealed to her after she completed it. It wasn't just that she shut the door on thinking. It's that if she had exchanges like the one she had with you and with many, many others, whether they were clients or interviewers or what, you, you can't help but see more if you're actively engaging those topics. So I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you, you had asked her like, what's your, what's, what's your favorite thing, the thing you love most about this book and what's the thing you love less so, right? And when I'm at this newest stage, cause the book just came out a couple of weeks ago, right now it feels really complete to me, but I know the process. And so what feels like I love less or what feels like I left out is probably gonna be the seeds to the next one. It's the infinite game. Again, we get yep, back to that infinite game. Um, listeners, real quick, um, we're going to have Pam back later 
this year. She's got a new book coming out called The Whitest Net. Um, and so um, we've been talking a lot about Pam. Just to give you a foreshadowing, we're going to be having that conversation too. As you know, one of my great loves is having authors come back to explore their body of work across multiple books. Um, so the first book Larry mentioned was actually Escape from Cubicle Nation, which was Pam's first book. Then she wrote um, Body of Work. Now she's coming back with The Widest Net. So stay tuned. We're going to have that one on. Um, it's going to be great. Uh, but now back to Larry in this conversation. Um, I, I love, you know, um, that you found that surprising in a similar way um, as I'm writing Workways. That's been one of the tension points because, you know, I'm really writing about the fact that it's the, the, the system of ways in which we work together that I'm calling Workways that you have to look at a whole as a whole because you can't just change one thing and think that it doesn't change something else. And so people will often come to me as a, you know, or consultant and be like, well, our meeting, our meetings suck. Universal, not universal, near universal, you know, sure. sort of challenge. Our meetings suck. And I'm like, okay, well, we can change. Uh, we can do a lot with your meetings. It will have ripples because it might turn out that the reason that you're, you don't like your meetings is because there are, you know, goal setting and priority workways that are making it such that your meetings are always rehashing what didn't work. Well, it's not the meeting's fault. It's the other, it's the other upstream things that we really need to talk about. And sometimes if you want to transform your meeting culture, you don't talk about the meetings. You talk about the things that are leading into that meeting that make them onerous. Or maybe you don't have the belonging workways that people show up and feel that they can actually contribute to the conversation and feel yes. seen, respected, and heard. That's why meeting sense is basically a one-way talking scenario. Okay, let's talk about those. And make those happen. But we have to look at like we make that one change in our belonging workways. And it's going to have ripples across our other workways in ways that we can't necessarily predict. Mm. Um, you might find that that person that has been a rock star in one setting turns out not to be a rock star in another. Or that person that's been quiet and hasn't really been contributing value, air quotes, becomes just a superhero on the backside just because you change that one thing. And yes. All the difference. Yes. I mean, look at, look at what's happening like in, in our work environment where the majority of those who were in an office went virtual over, over most of the last 18 months. And uh, now we're talking about, well, what's the right combination as we come back? And, and you can look at that and see that some people who you didn't think of as your stars just were thriving in that digital environment, right? And others that you might've thought of as your stars without the physical space didn't, well, don't you want the best of both? So you, you not only have to look at the multiple pathways as you're talking about, but their interconnection is what I would argue leads to that maximum value. This stuff is hard work, right? I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's hard work. However, getting going on any of it keeping a frame of reference that you just point yourself back to realizing that this is an ongoing process, those things are less hard. And I think when you start those and you embrace those and you don't fool yourself to say, well, if I just pull on this one thread, everything will be okay. You raise your odds of success. So I, I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm really excited by the way, about, about your, your new book and looking at those those combinations of things that influence one another, even when they're really powerful on their own. Yeah. Thanks for that. What I'll say in, in this, I'm glad you mentioned that it's hard work 
right? Um, it's difficult work, I would want to say, um, because sometimes we we layer additional story when we use the word hard, right? It's, it's difficult work. And um, what we have to remember is that most of our work happens in a small team of four to eight people. That's 80, 85% of most of our work. Even when we're indies, like Larry and myself, right, when we look at our teams or when we look at in larger organizations, when you look down at those teams and the people you work with every day, it's four to eight people. Mm-hmm. And we have an incredible amount of malleability and flexibility and co-creative capabilities with those four to eight people. Yep. So you might wish that your organization adopted this whole hog and took one of these, like, let them laugh, you know, soul matters. You right. might wish that that came from top down and what if our leaders did that. But our challenge, I'm, I'm including Larry in this challenge. He didn't he didn't necessarily get in, but I, I think it's going to be our challenge. Our challenge is to understand that you as you can be that rebel leader. You are that rebel leader that can practice these insights as well and work them with your team. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. This isn't about, you know, taking over the kingdom. This is about taking over the mental space in your head and saying, how do I use these insights to challenge, to guide, to advance my own thoughts and dreams and, and, you know, best work and, and, and everything else. That's really what it's about. Because if you can't get a handle on that yourself, whether you're the leader of the company or you're someone down the tier, you're not of much value to anybody else. So I, absolutely, I think that's true. Yeah. So look at yourself in those four to eight people that you work with every day, right? And say, how do we create you know, more belonging and trust and readiness so that we can thrive in these uncertain times? as opposed to waiting on someone else to, to do that. I know it's difficult work. Uh, my argument, you can see that I'm making this argument in workways as well, is you're already doing difficult work. Right. Your status quo is difficult. Right. Right. So what we're asking you is to embrace a different difficult that may give you the ability to, again, to have that belonging, that, you know, that, that readiness, that, you know, teamwork that enables you to thrive. So yeah. difficult work. Yes. You're already doing difficult work. Right. Um, let's, let's do some difficult work that gets us better outcomes. Um, you know, I mean, it's, and, and, and Charlie, ahead. we talk about words like difficult, which I think is, is more accurate than hard. But what's all, also interesting to me is when we tend to talk about a word or, or, uh, you know, a situation that is difficult, we, we tend to decouple it from the reward and decouple it from, well, if I just ignored it and stuck with what I had, how much more painful is that? Right. And these things go, that's the, that's the real difficulty. It's not just the new thing you have to face. It's realizing that it's interconnected to the rewards you want and the things you're doing right now that maybe aren't your best work or maybe don't get you where you want to go. That's, that's what I find is the difficulty to remind ourselves that those things are always in play and always together. Yeah. Um, that's not to bridge too much about workways, but we are tied again. I said, our work is, is, is collaborative or at least, um, conjoined in a way your, your systems, the ways you work together, your workways, what I'm calling, um, actually perpetuate themselves. Hmm. Um, because that's kind of their job, right? Systems reach an equilibrium. Sure. And so whatever you're dealing with, that's difficult, that's challenging, whatever it like, if you don't actively do some work to change that system, guess what? Three years from now, you're going to have a fractal of the same thing you're dealing with now. Yep. 
because that's what systems do. They perpetuate themselves. Yep. And so as we're talking about rebel leadership and some of these insights and things to practice, um, the choice that we have is to accept the, the system, the ways that we're working now, and we know predictably what we're going to get with that and or to do something a little bit different, to mm-hmm. do something you know, iterative, iteratively, iteratively, I can speak y'all, um, iteratively and intentionally to create a better new, um, a better new reality, as long as that reality exists, and then it's going to change again. And that's yep. the beauty. Um, I used to, Larry, you know this, I used to be a board member or board director at the Wayfinding Academy. And one of the lines in their creed is the future is uncertain. And that's a good thing. Mm. Totally agree. Totally agree. And, and, you know, isn't that the interesting thing, right? The, the, the reality of all this uncertainty around us is that it, it is there, it is real, but it is also necessary. I mean, that's, that's how we stay curious. That's how we advance ourselves. That's how we figure out how to get us out of the parts of whatever our current state of being is that are messy. Uncertainty is not always a negative thing. It's what you do with it and how you think about it and your level of awareness about it and your level of, of embracing it versus ignoring it. That's what matters. And, you know, uh, you're, you're looking at patterns. I'm looking at patterns. There are ways that people use uncertainty well and to their advantage and they're transferable patterns. I, I think they're worth paying attention to. All right, Larry, as the guest on today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation, depending upon which one of those resonate with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? You know what? That That's pretty easy. And it's it's actually the two things in one. Think about leadership differently. We have a tendency to think about this equation, the leader equals leadership. But everything we've been talking about, the willingness to ask a question, the willingness to embrace uncertainty, the willingness to realize that difficult work already exists and you have the opportunity to direct it someplace better. All of that is taking the lead. So it's not leadership in the way we traditionally think about it, but it's leadership in the way that leadership has always existed. It's a capacity within every one of us. So my invitation to listeners, my uh, revelatory statement to listeners is rethink what leadership is and realize that you have a place in it. You just have to choose to step into it. Don't wait for somebody else. Larry, as always, has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you every time I talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. It's mutual, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege. All righty. So you heard it from Larry. Rethink what leadership means. And I'm going to amplify that a little bit. I would guess you're already leading. I would guess that you already have some capacity to help yourself your team, and your organization thrive in these uncertain times. So now within the next week, what I would like you to do is to think about how you're going to embrace that and lean forward with that. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. 
To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 